0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we are continuing our series of sermons through the gospel according to Luke. And this morning we'll be looking at the first 10 verses. First 10 verses of Luke 15. Luke 15, verses 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? And go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." So how do you feel about the fact that someone can know where you are almost every moment of every day? GPS, the global global positioning system has been in place since the late 1970s. But with the rise of the internet and almost the universal use of cell phones, we have come to expect our lives to be tracked almost every moment of the day. Now, of course, GPS and cellular tracking data have made our lives easier in a lot of ways. Traveling from one place to another is certainly a lot easier. I've forgotten how to fold a paper map. Where would we be without Google for our trips? Not only to help us get from one place to the other place accurately, but also just to know where the stores and the restaurants are that we want to find. It's also helpful to be tracked when it comes to losing your phone or to be in an accident for someone to locate you in some cases or if someone steals your car. But it kind of freaks us out too, doesn't it? Just knowing that we're so easily tracked. I, one day I wanted to surprise my wife for lunch and so I drove down to her office and I went into the office, and she wasn't there. And so I asked her co-worker, I where, said, where's my wife? And she said, "Oh, they said, oh, she decided to take her lunch and go out on campus somewhere, we don't know where. Well, I pulled out my trusty Find My Phone app, which was also tracking her phone, and I was able to easily and quickly locate her on the other side of campus, sitting at a picnic table, eating her lunch. Now, she was happy to see me, of course, but A little freaked out, too, (laughs) that she could be found that easily. No, we have legitimate concerns about criminals or corporations or government agencies being able to violate our privacy, track us down, use the information of our location and our movements for any kind of nefarious purposes. But it all comes down to this one central question, doesn't it? Do you trust the people that are tracking you? Do you trust them? Are they looking out for your best interests? If so, then tracking can be a good thing. If you don't trust them, it can be an evil thing. Here in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables. And all three parables make the same point. God is relentless in tracking down sinners. And he does so because he rejoices to save us. All three of these parables make that same basic point. We're going to look at the first two, the two short stories at the beginning of the chapter today. The story is about a lost sheep and a lost coin. And then later we'll look at the longer story about the lost son. Actually two lost sons as we'll see later. Here, just to give you the context of all three parables, Jesus is again sparring with the Pharisees and the scribes. He's been doing that for quite a while now as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. These scribes and Pharisees were continually trying to catch Jesus in something they could accuse him of. Some way of hindering or stopping his ministry, which was becoming so popular, ultimately, the worst of them desiring to put him to death. This time, they're just grumbling. Actually, he says, they're grumbling about how Jesus tended to hang out with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors, of course, were Jews. They were ethnic Jews who worked for the Roman Empire to collect their onerous taxes on the people of Israel. And they did it in such a way that they enriched themselves by not only collecting the heavy amount of taxation that the Roman Empire required of the citizens, but also adding on their own and enriching themselves by the way that they're financially oppressing the people. So tax collectors were seen by scribes and Pharisees and many, many others as greedy extortioners and traitors. Sinners... Of course, the scribes and the Pharisees divided all people into two categories. The righteous, which were they themselves, and sinners, who were not among them, didn't follow their teachings. Of course, sinners most often applied to the truly lowly and sinful and outcasts of the society, the thieves, the prostitutes, but also to those who didn't follow the religious rituals and practices the way they did. Those were the sinners and so, the accusation that the Pharisees and the scribes throw in Jesus' face in this instance is this This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, understand that the Pharisees and the scribes primarily saw sinners as those to avoid. It was inappropriate to interact with sinners, it's inappropriate for Jesus to even spend time with the sinners, but especially to go to a meal with them. To be invited to a feast and to sit down with tax collectors and sinners was unthinkable to a scribe and Pharisee because in that hospitality-based culture, to enter into somebody's home, to feast with them, to sit around the table, is to accept them, to have a relationship with them. The scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus' behavior as compromising to a great extent. As they say, you know a man by the company he keeps. What's interesting is really the main point of these three parables that Jesus tells in response is really his way of saying, why, thank you very much. I do delight to receive and eat with sinners. Matter of fact, that's my joy. That's my mission. That's why I have come. Or as a former vice president might have said, I wear your scorn as a badge of honor. Or, as one of my favorite commentators says about this passage, he says, Oh, the irony. Their grumbling is our gospel. Their grumbling is our gospel. Thankfully, we serve the true God who seeks after sinners. Diligently seeks after sinners. Notice that Jesus tweaks the Pharisees in these first two parables that he tells. He tweaks them, provokes them. By comparing God to a shepherd and a woman, a shepherd who's lost a sheep and a woman who's lost a coin, understand that shepherds and women were both greatly disrespected by the Pharisees and the scribes. In the first case, he tells about a shepherd who has one of his sheep that wanders away. Now understand that sheep are not like cats and dogs. I have a cat and I have a dog. When my cat and dog leave, they have this instinct to come home. Not all dogs do. I had one that didn't once, and... Didn't bear the, the, the reputable name of a dog because he wouldn't come back when he ran off. But dogs and cats tend to have an instinct where they come home. They want to come back. Sheep didn't have that. Sheep don't do that. When they wander off, if they don't, somebody doesn't bring them back, they're hopelessly lost. And so you have a sheep that runs away. And what Jesus says, this shepherd will leave the 99 probably under the care of another shepherd. We don't know that. The story doesn't tell that detail. But then he goes to find the one until he finds him. The woman in the second story loses one of ten coins, silver coins. They are called drachmas. That's what the original language calls them. They were drachmas. Drachma was a, a Greek coin that was worth, generally speaking, about the same as a Hebrew denarius. And A denarius, one thing that you always remember about a denarius, when the scriptures often refer to a denarius, that... That was basically amounted to about a day's wages for a common laborer. So whatever that would be worth today, you know, $150, $180, whatever, for a common laborer's day's wages. If you lost $150 or $180, you would search diligently, wouldn't you, all through your house to try to find it. And of course, probably this woman, you almost assume that she was probably uh, a poor woman. And so this may have been Much, these ten coins may have been her whole net worth. The point of both of these stories is that God is the relentless seeker of sinners. You know, there's a whole branch of anthropology which is devoted to the study of man's search for God. Because scientists, social scientists, anthropologists recognize that there seems to be that innate desire in all people to find the transcendent, to find the divine, to find the supernatural. Materialistic evolutionists cannot explain that. Serves no purpose to the survival of the fittest. But in order to understand that what they call man's search for God, you have to understand. begin your understanding with biblical theology, which teaches that we are born hostile to the true God. Yes, we may have a natural instinct to find a transcendent divine entity, but we are born with rebellious hearts. We are born morally corrupt, spiritually dead, And we're hostile to God. God is our enemy, the one true God. So that, how we try to fill that God-shaped hole that the philosophers talk about, we want to try to jam in there these man-made gods that fit our expectations, fit our terms, that fit our needs. And we want nothing to do with the true God, Yahweh, the God of the scriptures. In man-made religions, and this is absolutely consistently true, in man-made religions, man seeks after God. In the one true religion, God seeks after sinners. And it's a huge difference in your theology. Michael Bentley is an English pastor and a commentator, and he writes this. He says, The Hindu can urge a sinner all he can to climb the hill of destiny in his effort to reach the top. The Buddhist can encourage him to tread the eightfold path in his search for the true happiness. The Muslim can bully him into following the five pillars of Islam in the hope that on the day of judgment he will escape the fires of hell. But only the God of the Bible actively goes out to seek and save the one who is lost and actually finds him, putting him joyfully on his shoulders and taking him home with rejoicing. Now, for some reason, we have an easier time believing this of the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament to the casual reader of Scripture seems different from the God of the Old Testament. And this idea of a a seeking God fits our concept of this New Testament God. But if that's your perception of the Old Testament God, you're not reading the Old Testament very carefully. Go back to the beginning. When Adam and Eve rejected their creator, when Adam and Eve rejected the word of God, when Adam and Eve basically believed the lie of Satan, when he questioned God's goodness and God's word, and they rebelled against God and sided with Satan, how did God respond? He said, the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. But they didn't die. God came into the garden searching for them. God came into the garden and said, Adam, where are you? Because God is a God who seeks sinners. Probably the definitive chapter in all the Old Testament that describes the true nature of God as a seeking God is Ezekiel 34. And it's interesting to our current study because... In Ezekiel 34, basically, the prophet Ezekiel was given a word from God to condemn the religious leaders of his day, the priests and the prophets, because they were called by God to shepherd his people. But instead, they were using the people of God. They were abusing the people of God. They were manipulating the people of God for their own interests. They were ignoring and deserting the people of God. And so God sends a word against them to condemn them. Let me read that portion of it to you. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 5. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. It pains me greatly to say that these words are incredibly relevant in our own day seems like every week I read about a spiritual shepherd in the church abusing, taking advantage of, and neglecting the sheep. God says he will hold them accountable. The ominous warning of Ezekiel 34 is that he will hold each one of these selfish, self-serving shepherds accountable. That's in verse 11 and 12. He says, for thus says the Lord God. Actually, it's actually in verses 7 through 10. He says he's going to hold me accountable. But in verses 11 and 12 is when he says, this is how I'm going to solve the problem. My shepherds are not feeding and caring and healing the sheep. I'm going to to take care of my sheep. He says, beginning in verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that they have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. In verse 16, he says, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. Well, how is God going to do that? How is God... The eternal creator God going to come and shepherd his sheep himself. Well, that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's revealed in verses 22 to 24 of Ezekiel, 20, or Ezekiel 34. Listen to this. I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. God is going to come and shepherd his people in the person of the son of David, the greater son of David, the king who was promised to the Davidic throne, the one who would reign over God's kingdom forever. God the son would take upon himself human flesh. And he would come and dwell among us. Live a perfect life and offer that perfect life up as a sacrifice of atonement on the cross. Dying in our place. Bearing the punishment that all of our sin and guilt deserves before a holy God. And then he would be raised from the dead victorious over sin and death. He is the good shepherd. John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's what he says in Matthew 19, verse 10. Interestingly, again, in the context of going to a party at a tax collector's house, this time Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus invites Jesus to come to his house after he's put his faith in him. And when Jesus comes to his house, he invites all his tax collector friends. And again, what do you expect the scribes and the Pharisees to say? Almost word for word, the same grumbling complaint that he hangs out with the tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The son of man comes to seek and to save the lost. Well, that is how God has come to shepherd his own, to open up forgiveness and reconciliation to him eternal life in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. All this has been given. How do we get found then? You and me, in space and time, in history, in our lives, in our experience, how do we get found? Well, it begins when the sinner recognizes that he or she is lost. That's the first sign that God has found you. That you as a lost sheep have been found. The first sign is that you, in a powerful way begin to realize that you're lost. You know, talking about GPS or cellular data, tracking, whatever, what is the one time in all of your life's experience where you would want somebody to be able to track you that easily? It's if you were totally irreparably lost, out in the woods somewhere, out in the wilderness, out in the midst of the mountains, If you were lost, injured, whatever, unable to help yourself, unable to be found, dying of dehydration and starvation, boy, you would want to be tracked to the very exact location where you are so that someone could save you. And that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we were born in that state. We were born hopelessly lost because of Adam's sin, because of our own sin. Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is at now at work and the sons of disobedience. He goes on to say, having no hope and without God in the world, you were desperately, irreparably lost in spiritual death and darkness and slavery to sin and death. You see, this is what the scribes and the Pharisees did not understand at the most basic level. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were good. They thought they were acceptable to God based on their own righteousness, their own good works, their own religiosity. In verse 7, Jesus interprets his own parable there about the lost sheep. He says, the lost sheep represents one sinner who repents. One sinner who recognizes how lost they are and how much they need to change, but they can't do it. That's the one lost sheep. But what do the other 99 sheep represent, according to Jesus? He says they represent, quote, righteous persons who need no repentance. Good luck finding one of those. Righteous persons who need no repentance. How could he possibly talk about the 99 sheep representing those who need not, do not need to repent. You need to understand that Jesus often uses irony and sarcasm. This is a dig at the scribes and the Pharisees. He's being sarcastic because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are born in sin. All are desperately lost. You know, if you want to understand the Pharisees and the scribes, Then go to Luke 18. Jesus gives a description of what they were like in Luke 18 because he tells about a prideful, self-righteous Pharisee praying in the temple alongside of a tax collector. The tax collector is humble, recognizing, despairing that he's lost and crying out to God for mercy in his prayers while the Pharisee is pridefully thanking himself, not God, for how good he is and that he's not like the tax collector. And Jesus describes the Pharisees in that account. He describes the Pharisees in this way. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. But then Jesus ends the story by pointing to the humble, repentant, mercy-pleading tax collector and says this man went down to his house justified rather than the other because God relentlessly seeks after sinners. In Luke chapter 5, when we studied that many months ago, we saw that Jesus called one of his own disciples, one of the, the 12 who had become the 12 apostles, he called one of them that was a tax collector, Matthew. And in that account, in Luke 5, it says that after he called Matthew to follow him, Matthew the tax collector, he went to Matthew's house to have a party with Matthew and his tax collector friends. And the Pharisees and the scribes showed up. And guess what they had to say? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Remember how Jesus responded? He said, those who are well have no need of a physician. Physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He was not saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you are righteous, you don't need to repent. If you, that's the way you read it, you're misreading it. Jesus is being sarcastic. He's saying, you think you're righteous, you are self-righteous, you're trusting in yourselves and you look with contempt on others because you are a prideful Sarah Pharisee who is blind to your own lostness. I have not come for you. I have come for those who know they are lost, who know they are sick, who know they need to be saved. I have come to seek and save sinners. The first evidence that you have been found by God is that the Holy Spirit has shown you that you are hopelessly lost in this life. You have come under deep conviction for your sin. You feel the heavy weight of your shame for your rebellion. You feel despairing in your slavery to sin and death. And you realize that there is no thing nor no person in this world that can help you, can save you. Dale Davis, the commentator, tells a story about a woman named Edith, who was in that state, who was feeling horribly guilty, looking at the ruins of her life, and realizing that much of it was caused by her own sin, looking into her own heart and her soul, and seeing only darkness and hopelessness, and in that state of depression, one Sunday she decided to go for a walk and as she walked by a church building she heard the people inside singing and so she walked into the church building hoping that there was some kind of answer among these people and so she comes in quietly and she sneaks into the back pew and she sits down and when the preacher gets up to preach he begins reading Luke 15 but he's one of these old school preachers that preach from the King James Version And so when he read verse 1, this is what he read. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. What Edith heard was this Jesus receives sinners and eateth with them. And she was stunned that the Bible would call her out by name. Now, of course, as she continued to listen, she began to realize it's her mistake. But that phrase kept bringing in her head over and over. He receives sinners and Edith with them. And it led to her salvation because she realized how lost she was. And she realized that Jesus would accept her. That brings us to the second step. The first step is realizing how lost you are. If you're realizing how lost you are, God has already found you. God's already searched for you, and God has already found you, and you know that because you know how lost you are. But the second step is when he leads you to Christ. The second step is the sinner being drawn to Jesus Christ. Did you notice I, all, all, what I said about these three parables and the whole chapter is about God seeking after sinners? But if you go back and read verse 1, Read carefully what it says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Seems to contradict our main theme, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. Because they were already found. they had already been sought out and found. they had already been showed their worthlessness and hopelessness. And because of that, they were drawn to Jesus Christ. Because he receives and eats with sinners. The Spirit had shown them not only their need, but the Spirit had opened their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ, the truth, the life-transforming truth that is in Jesus Christ. You see, that is all of our hope, that the Holy Spirit will never fail in his mission to show us our hopelessness and then show us Christ as our only hope. He will never fail to complete that mission, to enable us to hear the voice of Christ, to open our eyes so that we can see the beauty and glory of Christ, and to take away the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh so that we will love Jesus Christ, that be drawn to him, that's the work of the Spirit, and he never fails, because God relentlessly seeks sinners. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Or as he says over in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Do you remember those early days of your walk with Christ when all the lights turned on? If you live in America, you'd probably heard about Jesus most of your life, but there was that time where all of a sudden you saw Jesus. You understood the cross. You understood that there was real forgiveness available through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And you first had that hope of not only forgiveness, but reconciliation with God, of being adopted into God's family and living in his, his kingdom eternally. The joy and the excitement of the early days. We need to always be praying that the Lord will constantly be renewing that within us. That's the work of the Spirit. The same Spirit that showed us our sin and hopelessness. And then led us to Jesus Christ to find life and hope in him. will complete his mission. One of my new favorite hymns, there are still good hymns being written. And one of the newer hymns that was written that I truly love is called He Will Hold Me Fast. And let me remind you of just, we sing it here at Oakwood, so I'm sure most of you know it. Let me remind you of what the, the lyrics say in the middle of that song. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. That is our hope, that is our confidence. So the Spirit's work, when God finds us, the Spirit regenerates our heart. He opens our spiritual eyes. He opens our spiritual ears. He changes our affections so that we see love and are drawn to the beauty, the glory, the power of Jesus Christ. And then as we realize what he has done, exalted us from our hopeless estate to eternal hope in Christ, we celebrate And the rest of our existence here on earth is all about celebration. The rest of our existence in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity will be celebration. And both of these stories allude to that. When the lost sheep is found, the shepherd calls together his friends and neighbors and throws a party to celebrate. When the woman finds her lost coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors and they get together and they have a party and they celebrate. In the next parable, we'll look look at later, when... The son comes home when the the father finds his lost son. He throws a big feast, a big party, and they celebrate. I hope you get the point. That the result of being sought and found is eternal celebration. You enter into the celebration of your father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We celebrate a lot of things. Yesterday we celebrated a Penn State football victory. Back in 2008, I was a part of the biggest earthly celebration I've ever been a part of when the Philadelphia Phillies won the World Series. I'll never forget that experience going down to, to uh, the middle of Philadelphia. They said there were almost two million people there that day celebrating that World Series victory. And I, literally, I've never seen I anything. Mean, the parade took all of about four minutes to go by But we were there all day long, singing, yelling, celebrating. It was amazing. And it was for a baseball game. All of eternity is going to be celebrating the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, celebrating our restored relationship with God. And we begin that here at the Lord's table in our fellowship and our worship together. That's what our existence is about now. It's celebrating the grace of God that found us when we were hopelessly lost. And the beautiful message of Scripture is that that is what our Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are celebrating. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, it tells of Jesus there, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. While he was hanging on the cross, bearing The eternal wrath of hell that your sins and my sins deserve. What was he thinking about? He says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the unthinkable suffering of the cross. The joy of our salvation. Jesus told us that on the day of judgment, when we are forgiven and we stand before him robed in the righteousness of Christ, he's going to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's how he describes eternity, entering into the joy of our savior and master. In Isaiah chapter 62, verses four and five, it says, you shall no more be termed forsaken But you shall be called, my delight is in her. For the Lord delights in you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Or even more beautifully, it's expressed in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is the God who is like the shepherd bringing back the lost sheep on his shoulders and partying with his friends. This is how God looks at you, celebrating with you his saving work. God seeks sinners relentlessly, and he finds his joy in saving them. That's what all three of these parables is about. Let me go back to my first point. Somebody knowing where you are every moment of every day is either good news or bad news based on how much you trust the person seeking you. Based on that thought, let me read to you in closing the words of David in Psalm 139 where he begins that psalm meditating on how God knows everything about him. exhaustive knowledge of every thought, every word, and every deed in your life, every location, every movement in your life should terrify somebody who only knows God as a holy judge, but we know God as a God who seeks after sinners and delivers them through his son, Jesus Christ, and so we share the sentiment, the heart, the joy, the celebration of David when he says in the very next verse, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high I cannot attain it. I cannot comprehend a love like that. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the Lord's table, we come with deeply thankful hearts that when we were hopelessly and desperately and irreparably lost, you came to us. You sought us. You sent your spirit to open our eyes, open our ears, and change our heart. You drew us to Christ, and in him we have found true life, true meaning, true purpose, true peace, true joy, and you have invited us into your eternal celebration. Lord, help us to participate in that celebration even here today, especially as we gather at the table to celebrate the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pour out your grace upon us as we gather at your table, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.